This is the All Sports Podcast devoted to your favorite teams in North Texas. Welcome to Ballsy, a production of the Dallas Morning News and Sports Day. Our weekly show is proudly hosted. Okay, strike that. Our show is hosted by Kevin Sherrington, Evan Grant, and myself. I'm David Moore, and who knows, maybe we'll have a special guest or two along the way. Catch other episodes by subscribing to the Ballsy Podcast on iTunes. We're also on social media. Just search Ballsy Podcast on Facebook and Twitter, and you'll be notified of the latest episode. Don't forget, it's Ballsy with a Z. Are you ready, sports fans? Ballsy starts now. Hello, everybody. Welcome into Ballsy, the Sports Day DFW Dallas Morning News Sports Podcast. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by David Moore. Hi, David. Hello, Kevin. And Evan Grant. Hi, Evan. Yo. How's it going? It's great. Hey, Kevin. A belated happy birthday to you. Oh, thanks, Evan. It was a it was a fun birthday. You know, I got a lot of clothes from everybody, and, and I'm not sure what that means when that happens. You know. When you get a lot of clothes, it's like, what, what are you saying here, you know? So were they new clothes, at least? Were they new or were they used? Or? Exactly. They were new. We we're not in the habit of giving each other used clothes too much. Too much. Um, but, what was uh, it like getting a Social Security check? Ho, ho, ho. 64, you don't get a Social Security check. Not unless you, yeah. you want to draw. You're not 64. Come 64, on. pal. Six four, the big six. This is the you know, it's a sixty-four is a nothing number though. It's sixty-five, that's the big one. That's Shrug. when you're officially old, right? Sixty-five. Sixty-four is just a placeholder. Yeah. You exactly. hope. <laughs> At least you <laughs> yeah. hope it is. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I don't know what this means, but uh, you know, my father died at fifty-nine. And so, you know, my my uh, most of my adult life growing up, you know, you, you think about those kind of things, especially when uh you have the same kind of heart conditions that he did. So I always think of my age now, and I'm plus five. I, I look at it like uh, I, I've outlived him by five years, and uh, and that um, not that it was the competition, uh, but uh, I, I feel good about that, you know. So that explains your reckless behavior. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, this is my older brother. See, he's five years older than me. He's already outlived me by nine years. So uh, so this is uh, these are in our family, and he's had heart surgery. My younger brother had. Uh, cardiac arrest and was brought back uh so uh you know it's kind of a big deal with the three of us uh every year we get past uh, 59 so it's good well so since you've started us off on such a uplifting <laughs> tale kevin well i'm alive i'm glad i'm alive holy cow come on let's go into well well here. but 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 to be fair, your dauber was down to start this whole thing, Evan. I think this is – I think you set the emotional tone <laughs> my, in, my our, in our in our pre-Zoom meeting. My dauber is definitely down. What – tell me one thing in sports that I should have my uh, – I should have my dauber up about. Yeah. They just crowned a colonial champion. That's right. That's How right. about the ending on that one, huh? So you go wow. the, you got the colonial with the greatest field ever, right? And you end up with number 44 and number 107 uh, in a playoff, and the guy misses a missing short putts. Putt. Oh my gosh, he missed it. I felt so bad for Morikawa. You know, you you miss a three foot putt. Holy cow, that's just unbelievable. Uh, so anyway, hats off to Daniel Berger. Right, that was his third career win. Uh, his, his previous two wins were both at the uh, FedEx 
uh, Classic. So that was interesting that he's won three times, but only twice at uh, different venues. So uh, that's why this show is going to be on Daniel Berger today. Evan, your thoughts. <laughs> I, you know what? Congratulations, Daniel. He, he he likes to be he he likes to be called the ham. The hamburger. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I uh, I'm going to tell you I didn't I I wasn't so starved for sports that I watched Colonial. Well, I tell you it was very I don't know how much you watched David. I watched pretty much all of it on Sunday and then parts of the other days. Um but it was uh really eerie not having any fans out there and the guys just you know, you can't always tell that on a, but on the weekends you can really tell it. Obviously, you can hear the background noise and everything. And when the tournament was over, it was so anticlimactic uh, on Sunday. You know, it was just like, wow, uh, you know, Morikawa misses the putt. They're not, no one's really prepared for that, for him to miss a three foot putt. And it's like, oh, okay. And Burgers won. And then, you know, and Burgers standing there and he's getting interviewed and he looked like he's about to start crying and, but there's nobody there, and it's look. It looks like there, he's, there was no groan on the missed putt. There was no collective groan. Well, uh, there was from Morikawa, but that was about it. Uh, it was it was a, a really kind of bizarre take on that, and obviously, you know, a, a little precursor to what it's going to be like in, in sports in general. Although that's nothing compared to what it's going to be like in football or, or baseball or anything else. Well, yeah, this is the most subdued of the sports. And, yeah. And and you notice it's such a striking difference, even even with golf. Again, all the all of these sports now, when they come back, it's going to be like watching their practice sessions. Yeah, uh, you know this was this was like watching a practice round, or for basically for them it was a practice round. As far as the emotional feel, you would think as as far as the uh, you know. And now look, a lot of them grew up playing in junior golf events where you didn't have many people out there, so I it, it's a little different, but. Yeah, when when you see basketball and hockey and and football and and you noticed I only mentioned basketball and hockey and football as far as what you'll see uh, in the next few months, uh, it's just going to be very odd. And and again, I think all the networks are going to have a, a legitimate debate about don't we need to pump in some fan noise, some stadium noise, and and they're going to have to set standards like, okay, do you still play? Uh, do you still play the same loops that all these teams do at home games, uh, home events, as far as uh, things to rev up the crowd, uh, other bits they play throughout, or are you just go completely dark? You, I, you didn't. You didn't mention baseball, David. Why is that? I believe I didn't mention it twice. <laughs> <laughs> baseball. Probably the less said about baseball, the better. Um, a daily kind of a daily uh act of what kind of self-harm can the sport do to itself today uh it's a really bad it's a bad look and a bad spot that baseball has found itself in but i'm going to say this I, you know we've got so many different jumping off points today um I've got no problem if baseball doesn't play the season because of the coronavirus and because that there are real health issues, but they crossed that path, right? That's a, that they crossed that river and said we're going to go on and play. And for Rob Manfred to come out on Wednesday and say uh, he's a hundred percent certain that there's going to be a season, and four days later to walk it back to the extent that he did last night on ESPN 
Um, I mean, the commissioner of, of, of baseball has, in my mind, has no credibility at this point in time. Um, I, I think people are fed up. I know what my reaction was when I saw that th those comments yesterday. Um, and I think that, you know, we've got a lot of other things to, to consider with the other sports as well, because we're seeing the basketball players be concerned about the coronavirus and the bubble. We're seeing NFL players test positive now. And, and we've talked about this and what, what could happen with a team if, if one player in brings a positive situation, uh, brings a, uh, a case of the coronavirus into the locker room. Uh, it's just not a good situation uh, anywhere. Yeah, we it's fascinating really that the one thing that should, the one thing, the overriding thing that would keep baseball from coming back is not even part of the discussion anymore about it not coming back. Right. And, and to the one completely ignore, yeah. not coming back, right? The yeah. Dude, we haven't even talked about in college sports and uh, about what's happening there with, uh, you know, now we see that the, you know, they're making these kids sign waivers that, that was out at Ohio state was doing that. And now uh, Sam Bloom has, uh, was able to get uh, one of the, uh, a form from one of the kids to sign. Uh, and I'm sure that uh, probably everybody's doing this. If, if, if a couple of schools are doing it, everybody's doing it. And, it could, and if they weren't, they are now, uh, you know, no one wants to be caught behind the scenes on that but you know this is just another example and this is a little bit of a sidelight on all this to me of of what's demanded of college athletes uh and yeah we want you to come and play we want you to represent the school and take this risk and oh by the way if you do you you can't sue us over it uh you, you know if anything bad should happen uh because of all this stuff this you know the kind of the same thing they risk just in their um just by playing sports you know if they get hurt there's long-term uh, health issues, you, you don't get that. It's kind of been one of my points is that I don't know about, I don't really know about paying athletes, you know, to play. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't have a problem with it because everybody's making so much money, but I think there unquestionably should be long-term health benefits for athletes, especially football players uh, who, uh, as we know, uh, and I've done stories on guys that uh, never played pro football, and yet they ended up with dementia in their 50s, or they, uh, or they ended up, you know, with on artificial knees and hips and all kinds of things. And and uh, it's just been expected. Oh well, that's just part of the deal. That's part of the trade-off. You know, um, I don't I don't think it should be. Not anymore. Not with all the money that's being made by by uh, college sports off of these kids. So. Anyway, there's a lot of uh, a lot of ramifications here, not not including uh, the fact that uh, you know now we've had uh, uh, Mike Gundy, who pretty much consistently seems to step in something, uh, and uh, and did once again wearing his OAN uh, T-shirt on a fishing trip at Lake Texoma. Um, we already knew that Mike was a big fan of OAN because he has uh, made that a uh, He's made that a case before, you know. I I think what's he happened. He brought that up unsolicited, right? He just brought that up unsolicited in a conference call a, a few months ago, I think. He did complaining about the the fact that uh, you know that the uh, you know the mainstream media is doing such a poor job, and and you know it's like yeah, Mike, it's it's always somebody else's fault uh, with Mike, uh, and until his players stand up for themselves, and Chuba Hubbard did that, and uh, who's uh, was the nation's leading rusher last year and a, and a leading candidate for 
the Heisman Trophy and, and just said, you know, uh, so many things that these athletes and uh, have uh, and, and people in general have put up with all these years. It's like now they see this is my opportunity to speak. You know, it's like we all understand on this Zoom call uh, what a hook is. You know, I, I gotta I gotta have a hook to write this story. I can't just write it. You know, and, and it's like this is the hook for all these athletes now. The times that we're in. And we're going to stand up for ourselves and we're going to talk about the things that have always bothered us. We just felt like we couldn't do it before, you know, or, we, or it was difficult for us to do it before, but now we're going to do it. We're not going to let this opportunity pass. And, and so you know, this is, this is giving guys that opportunity. And then it's been good to, to see them seize it. I mean, I, 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 I think that they are, there are a lot of things that have bothered athletes and uh, about their situations. Um, whether it's their situations as athletes or their situations um, simply in, in, in social situations. And you can just tell that there are a lot of things that have bothered these guys over the years and that this has given them the opportunity to, to use their voices. <laughs> Excuse me, especially the NBA players now who are um, um, – you know, Kyrie Irving and, and, um, and, uh, oh gosh, uh, Dwight Howard, <coughs> excuse me. Um, among others, uh, um, Avery Bradley oh, also, I think, right? yeah, have all said that they're not sure they want to come back. Right. They don't know this season that they, they don't, they don't want to do it. They want to concentrate on, on things that were real. Uh, and now in some of those cases, these are guys playing on teams that really don't have a shot uh, in the playoffs, but except for Dwight Howard and Avery Bradley, uh, they are now Dwight's a backup with the Lakers now. Um, but it, that will, it'd be interesting to me to see how that goes over with some of their teammates. Uh, if they, if they advance far in the playoffs uh, and it, and it weakens those teams. I, I, my thinking is that probably it, it won't too much this year uh, because everybody realizes there's a lot of really important things going on. Um, but, uh, you know, there's no question also that this season was wrecked, right? From the sports standpoint, we're not going to get any kind of definitive read on anything. When, when we look back on 2020, you know, if I lived another 30 years, no one will think about, oh, well, that was the year that, you know, that, the uh, you know, I don't know that the Lakers came back and won a title, man. That was great. You know, no one, no one would be talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's just so much that uh, is happening now that I do think that the athletes feel like what is, I'm going to be risking myself from a uh, health standpoint if I do these things, or I'm risking my loved ones, you know, my, my, my aunt, my mother, my father, whoever that might be at risk here. And for what, uh, and maybe I just need to take a bigger stand here as well. Well, I, well, I think that's a better way to – oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Evan. I was just going to say, I think the NBA players, you know, they have the opportunity to to use the playoffs as a as a platform. I think they have the opportunity to, to ask for um, extended or, or a bigger kind of uh, platform during those broadcasts. Cause God, we all know that there's going to be any, uh, any amount of dead space that's got to be covered in any of these playoffs or, or broadcasts without, without fans in the stands. And I, I think that the NBA players would have the opportunity to really use their voices in that, in that situation. Um, 
to try and bring some 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 more attention to what what they're dealing with and and what the community is dealing with at large. Yeah, NBA players have always one not only been more willing to use their voice than other athletes, but really have a uh, more of a bully platform, if you will, uh, than others because because of the recognition that there's a celebrity and a name recognition um, with with an elite uh, basketball player that you really don't see in the other sports just because of how it's structured. And it's been that way for a while. It's been a, it's been a uh, athlete driven, uh, celebrity driven sport in a lot of ways. Now, again, based on performance, but again, um, so, so they're more comfortable using their platform. And it's interesting. It also shows you what happens when you have that ethos from the ground up because to me, you also have some of the most progressive outspoken coaches in any sport in the NBA. Now, is that because of who they are or is that because the culture is different in the NBA than other sports and just everyone, you know, is enveloped in that? It's a little both, but again, I think it's a, I think it's a ground up movement. And when you're talking about a ground up movement in sports, you're talking about the athletes. And uh, that's to me why I think the, the NBA has certainly much, a much different social and racial uh, feel and, and impact uh, with their voice than, than the other sports do at the moment. So, so we've, we've just got so many places that, that we can go and we're, we're a little bit all over the place. And, and I, Kevin, you started down the road with the colleges, but you talked you, you talked more about the the coronavirus um, situation. What is your feel on that? You, you've talked about that the players deserve long term health benefits, and I, I think that's that's entirely reasonable. But what's your what's your thought on where things stand with particularly college athletes talking about uh, the racial situation in the country and and things that that they find to be offensive, um, particularly at Texas and A&M? Well, obviously, we've seen protests uh, at A&M. We've seen protests at Texas. You know, Texas has, has always been like that. I was looking up something the other day, uh, and remember when, when Brian Jones, uh, I think Brian works for CBS still uh, as a college analyst, uh, a really smart guy, very thoughtful, and, and uh, I remember going down to – Texas uh, with uh, Daryl Richards, we went down there for a protest then that uh, that Brian was part of on campus. So um, we're used to seeing that at Texas, not so much at places like A and M, uh, which is a little more conservative atmosphere and generally speaking. And and, um, uh, and so you saw yesterday protest of uh, Saul Ross, uh, um, who was a former president of A&M, a former governor of Texas, and also a former Confederate officer, um, in which they won that statue remo removed. You know, uh, it, my oldest son, Jake, went to Millsaps College in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, Millsaps College is named after Reuben Millsaps, who was Confederate officer, uh, and he was, uh, and donated all the land where the, the college is uh, in Jackson. So how do you, I mean, if someone were to protest that, what do you say? We're going to change the name of the school? I mean, it's, it's a little, 
you know, and then there's, there's uh Saul Ross out in West Texas, you know, I mean, there, there are a lot of things, a lot of moving parts here. And uh, I, I think it's good that all these things are going to be discussed. I think that everything should be on the table. Let's, let's talk about it. Let's, let's let the athletes come in and talk and the, and the students in general. And uh, what do y'all want to talk about? And, and what do y'all propose? And, and then we're going to tell you what we think is feasible to do. And then we're going to have a discussion about what we're, we might remove, what we might leave, what we might put a historical marker here saying that here's, here's what this meant and what it meant at the time. And, what, and let's see what we can learn from this uh, as well. There's, there's, there's a lot of things you can do in these cases. And I think the, the first thing it starts with is listening. You know, as long as we're going to say to you, yes, we're going to listen. This is great. Because to me, the great thing about all this is, is that, you know, I grew up and David grew up in the 60s when there was all kinds of social unrest. It was all the time. I had somebody wrote me yesterday and she talked about how it was a very stressful time, the 60s. And it was a very stressful time. I, I remember thinking in 1968, we had so much time. We had, we had two men, two great leaders assassinated. Uh, it was also the year that my father had his first heart attack, uh, and I was 11 years old when that happened. All these things are happening. I, I, I think I just kind of grew up feeling like, wow, there are just always terrible things happening in life. That's just what life is, you know, a series of terrible events. And so when you when you grow up in that kind of atmosphere, uh, you know, people complained a lot of parents complained we sent our kids away to college and look what happened they started protesting and they and they're questioning all the things that we knew oh my gosh how awful college is and we're, and we're paying for all this too uh and i and i think to me the great thing about that experience and and what is happening now is that that's what kids should should be doing they should be going to college and questioning things questioning what they have learned and how much of it is valid you know i don't know about y'all but how many times did you take a college course and you found out something that this is not what they taught me in high school and junior high this is completely different from that you know it seemed like we were always constantly you know relearning something about that it had occurred earlier in our life so I'm all for this kind of environment. I want these kids to be engaged. I don't want them just showing up. You know, we've complained for years and years and years that athletes show up on campus and all they do is they go and play their sports. And they're not, and they're not really, they're just kind of sleepwalking through classes. Well, maybe they're not doing that now. Maybe they're paying attention. I don't know if they are or not, uh, but it seems like they are. And it seems like they're engaged in all of this. And I, and I think this is a great time for all of these uh, professors and campus officials to be engaged with these athletes to say, hey, we, we hear what you're saying here. You know, now the problem from the, from the administration's part is going to be just what happened at the University of Texas campus when they, uh, they put Governor Hogg's statue back. You know, they removed it, you know, because of concerns about the fact of uh, some of the stances he had, he had made uh, in, in society when he was a governor. And then because of a protest from the family, uh, it's a very prominent family, and a lot of the things they've done, they said, well, you know, we decided to bring that back. I don't know if that was a good idea to do that without talking to anybody else about it, you know. I certainly, I, listen, I'm certainly willing to consider possibilities here. My mother's maiden name was Bragg, uh, and so you, you may have noticed there is a, a Fort Bragg, uh, and so Braxton Bragg is a distant relative. My, my younger brother's middle name is Braxton. 
And, uh, and so, you know, we didn't know anything about him yet, you know, so I looked him up once when I was in college and there was a little short bio on each of these, uh, Confederate officers. And for him, I believe it, it said, if I can recall this perfectly, it was, um, uh, an, uh, an ugly man despised by his troops, his military capabilities have been questioned to this day. I said, well, that pretty much covered everything, didn't it? You know? Uh, so it's not like I'm really proud of it. If they want to take, if they want to take Fort Bragg off of the name off of, of Fort Bragg, I got no problem with it as, as a distant relative. It's, it's just fine with me. This is the thing now. I mean, this, this is to, to me, if you skip the conversation and just go to action, you're missing the whole point and you're just building resentment and you're never going to have understanding. You're never going to have the chance for different people to come together and at least get a, a a glimpse into why they feel as passionately as they do or don't feel as passionately and 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 look you, nothing is truly transformational unless it's relational and if you just go okay protest the overwhelming sentiment right now is you shouldn't do this so let's you know you hear the phrase cancel culture now so let's just cancel this and act like like it didn't happen well you're not addressing the problem, you're just suppressing the problem and it's going to come up again at a later time. Uh, usually the pendulum's gonna swing the other way. And so, um, and you really don't wanna establish a climate where, okay, if, if you're loud, just because you're loud, change comes about. You also have to be engaged and stay engaged. And, and I don't know if it's a culture, if we've been engaged really in, in significant, societal issues on on an ongoing basis i think everyone kind of uh you hear like you know you parachute in you, you drop in you drop out uh, i think it's important at times but again there there has to be uh it, it has to always be at the forefront so just responding now to what's going on it's just going to be like we've done in the past i mean you this is the time for conversation and to keep it out there and discuss all the elements of this. And, but again, that's gonna take time and some people are gonna be frustrated that the change isn't happening quickly enough by saying, well, look, I've, I've been in this position for this long. Why, why do I have to wait any longer? This is, this is not, you know, this is not right, just address it. And that's a legitimate concern, but you also have to factor that into what is significant lasting change? How do you accomplish that? And is this a crossroads to do it? And th those are all very difficult questions because each and every one has a little bit different time frame to it, I think. Yeah, and I, I think you bring up a good point. I, 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 and and the, the idea of conversations, I just go back to the little film clip I watched of the protests, um, the dueling protests at A&M by the Sol Ross statue the other day, in which you had um, a, a group of Black Lives Matters protesters uh, for lack of, any other kind of label, but there were some Black Lives Matter signs in that group uh, chanting for this for the uh, for the statue to be removed. And then you had another group show up to you know basically do old A and M yells and uh, um, support the statue. And to me, it's like I don't know that anybody was listening there. It was just the idea of 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 cancel of, of the the idea of do we cancel this out or, you know, we stand for it. Nobody ever took the time to say, listen, let, let me hear what you have to say. And, and that's a very reasonable thought. I just, that's just not the way we seem to operate as a society. I, I, 
I know, and I think I've talked about this a little bit with you guys. I, I'm, I'm so um, – I don't even know what the words – I wouldn't – I don't want to say distraught, but I'm so troubled by the fact that, you know, my hometown, um, the Stone Mountain is an icon in, in Atlanta. Um, the statue of the three the, – not the statue, the sculpture of the three Confederate – figures, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and Jefferson Davis, didn't, wasn't finished on the side of the mountain until 1970, 105 years after the, uh, the, 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 um, the end of the Civil War. Um, and it was always viewed as a place that, hey, you took your family and you, you had a good time. They used to have a laser show there at night on Friday on, uh, at night where they showed stuff across the, the, free, the face of the mountain. And, and everybody that I knew went and, you know, I've talked to African-Americans who grew up in Atlanta and have never been to that park because that stat, because of what that sculpture, sculpture doesn't represent anything to me except that somebody blasted uh, an aesthetically pleasing thing on the side of the mountain. It represents to me the, the failure of the, of what the Confederacy stood for, that it was, it was a, a failed concept, a bad concept. To the black community, I mean, it stands for hate. It stands for a whole lot more than, than all of that. And it's troubling to think that I, that I went there and never, never fully comprehended how offensive this could be to people. And um, I, it's something that in, inside I've really, I've really wrestled with. So I don't know, I, I don't know how we all feel about the things that are in our lives. I mean, we. We pass Lee Park all the time with the statue of General of, of, of Robert E. Lee, um, and you don't. Do we wonder how many how many cities in the South have Confederate memorials um, and campuses that have have buildings named after Confederate um, or racist uh, Southern um, figures, uh, and we don't have statues of Martin Luther King on on, on these campuses, and we don't have. We, we we don't have memorials to to the civil rights movement on many of these campuses, and it it, it is troubling that I guess I'm a, I'm about to be a 55 year old man and I've never really considered that and and it just feels like I lived inside my bubble and I, I think that's what a lot of people are wrestling with right now that they have lived inside their bubble and it was okay and these are things that should have been rectified decades ago right. Well, let me, let me, uh, let me, I want to talk about something I got engaged in with a, a reader the other day. Uh, <clears throat> I wrote about uh, this whole issue of uh, listening on campus and I, I talked about the Texas athletes and I said, you know, it could have been a lot worse. They could have, you know, petitioned that they wanted Daryl Royal's name taken off of, uh, off the stadium and have his statue removed, you know, and, and, and that sounds terrible to say that's Daryl Royal. He's the greatest coach in the, history of this, probably the greatest college coach in the history of the state. Uh, and, uh, and, and I wouldn't say I knew Daryl well, I, I, I knew him uh, was at, at the end of his life when I, I knew him. And, and certainly I know all about him and uh, I've written about him on several occasions. I've not written much about the fact that, you know, he was very slow to integrate uh, his football team. Uh, it wasn't integrated until 1970 with Julius Whittier uh, was his first scholarship player that, that stayed there. Uh, he, tried a couple of other times. Our good friend Jeff Miller sent me uh, a memo from 1959. That was when Daryl had been on campus for a couple of years in which uh, the 
uh, an assistant to the athletic director sent something around uh, to all the coaches on the staff um, and asked them about the possibility of, of integration and how do you feel about it, you know? And, and they had the reports back from each one of them and what they said. And uh, at that time, Darrell Royal said that, well, they all said they were not in favor of it. Well, the basketball, I can't even remember who the basketball coach was in 1959, but he said that, uh, that he wouldn't have any problem with it, but he was not in favor of it. Uh, the rest of them all said, no, don't want, don't want black coaches, don't want black athletes now. Darrell Royal said that they, when he'd been at Washington, they caused problems. One of the things he talked about was that the players complained about the fact that the black players were coming to their dorm room and, and lying around on their beds. Uh, you know, they're just unbelievable things to read about, you know, and, and of course, the, one of the points that I made in this was that in 1963, after he won the first national championship in Texas history, who had more power at that point than Daryl Royal? We, I have just won a national title here. Now I'm going to say we need to do this. What Daryl Royal said in 1959 was, I want to let some other Southwest Conference schools do it first. And, and as I pointed out, when uh, Hayden Fry took the job at SMU in 1962, he took it and said, I'm not taking this job unless I can integrate the football program. That's, that's the requirement right now. Um, and, and so that's what happened. And he became the first Southwest Conference school to, with a black scholarship football player in Jerry Levias. Baylor also had John Westbrook, but he was not a scholarship player. Uh, and Houston, of course, integrated with uh, uh, Warren McVeigh. Uh, but the, Houston wasn't in the Southwest Conference at the time. But anyway, so I got it. So this guy, uh, I just pointed all this out to say that, look, you know, Daryl was on the wrong side of history. He went on to admit that he was on the wrong side of history. He told Ken Dabbs, who was the man who recruited Earl Campbell, that, that was a very difficult recruitment because Earl Campbell did not want to go to Texas because of Daryl Royal. He, because people in East Texas knew that, that Royal had not, uh, been in favor of recruiting uh, uh, black athletes. And so uh, it, it was some doing to get that to happen. And eventually he did. And eventually uh, Earl loved uh, uh, Daryl, but he always gave Ken Dabbs more of the credit. And, uh, and what Daryl said to Ken later was, I wish I had listened to you sooner. He also tried to get him to recruit Elmo Wright, who went on to play at Houston and for the Kansas City Chiefs, a great receiver. Uh, and at that time he said, no, we're just not, as Daryl put it, we're not ready for that. It's like, that's an easy excuse to say something like that. Uh, we're not ready for that. They, uh, maybe, maybe we weren't ready for that. Judging by what happened to Jerry Levine at SMU, maybe we weren't ready for that. But because uh, Hayden Fry and Jerry Levine forced the issue, we, they made that happen. At some point, you have to make it happen. And that's what they did. So this guy wrote it to me to say that the, the reason why these white coaches didn't recruit black players was because they weren't academically ready for that kind of thing. Yeah. And I said, that, that'd been news to Jerry Levias, who was an academic all American. Uh, these guys went on to play at UCLA. They played at Michigan. They played all over the country, uh, but they weren't academically ready for the rigors of UT. Uh, and, and so, so this guy would said, he said, so you're accusing Daryl Royal of being a racist. And I said, no, just you. Uh, and, and that, and that is the, the issue to me that someone today can say that, that black people in the 1960s were not academically ready for the University of Texas campus. I could imagine my grandmother maybe saying something like that. Uh, not somebody my age, not somebody younger. I am horrified 
that there are still people in the world who say these kind of things and think they're not racist. You know, it, it is unbelievable to me that, and this is the problem that, that black people face every day, is that mindset that there are still not just some people, but a lot of people like that out there. Yeah, it, it's, um, I, I, we've all had some kind of interaction, I think, with, with folks in the last couple of weeks that has made you say, or you've seen some kind of interaction that's made you say, gosh, I, I, I really wasn't aware that this, or, or I was kind of trying to sweep aside that this level of, of what's the right word, ignorance or hatred, um, had been had, had somehow faded away and it, it, it hasn't um and that's just that's just sad um but we have more disasters to talk about more disasters sure let's talk about the cowboys and COVID 19 david <laughs> well uh there have been uh less than five cowboys who have tested positive uh and I do know it's more than two, so I would say that means either you never hit down that even with my limited mathematical mind, that means three or four uh, cases of COVID on the Cowboys, uh, positive tests. Uh, none of these players have been to the facility in the off season. And in each case, uh, my understanding is that, you know, the, the team has not set up anything for testing. Um, they have not said, look, even though you guys aren't here, if you're concerned, uh, or, you know, just to kind of get a jump on this, we've set up some testing outside the facility for you to go. Uh, the Cowboys haven't done that. And to my understanding, I, I don't know that any other NFL team has done that. Um, each of these positive tests came after, uh, these individuals were told that, you've come in contact with someone who does have COVID-19, you might want to get tested. And um, even uh, Ezekiel Elliott's mother on Twitter last night confirmed that's how they did it. Uh, she said herself, uh, her son, and uh, her daughter, uh, Elliott's sister, uh, all three of them were exposed uh, when they were in a setting uh, to someone who they later found out had COVID-19. So they all got tested. Uh, Elliott's came back positive. Ezekiel Elliott's came back positive. Uh, his mother and his sister did not. So, um, you know, I, I understand this This took on a lot of weight yesterday because it was Ezekiel Elliott. It's a high-profile player. Uh, um, we're at a time where there wasn't a lot of other specific COVID news of other athletes having it. So then it's it, it created a uh, almost a groundswell of, okay, uh, now a big-name player has it. So, so let's look again what are – uh, should training camps open on time? What do head coaches think? What's going on? And, and, and all of this. And, and my response to that was, it was more than a shrug of the shoulders, but less of this alarmist reaction. Because my initial thought was, what did you think was going to happen? This is going to happen constantly, or at least consistently, in every single sport that comes back. You're going to have positive cases arise and it's about the you, you can't every time you can't the, the, the fact that people are throwing up their hands saying, oh my gosh what does this mean to me speaks to the underlying issue of does anyone have a clear concept of the protocols in place once sports returns 
on how this will be handled. And to me, that's what this speaks to. Two, the other thing I thought of was, okay, it, there's, there's this consternation out there. And like I say, I understand it on one level, but once all these teams do report to training camp next month, and they actually do, in the blood work, they actually do the antibody test to see who have had it before. How many players on every one of these teams are they going to go, really? There have already been 20, 25 of our players who have had this, and we didn't know about it, and they didn't know about it. I mean, there, we're still at the stage where um, the testing hasn't been expansive to where you really know exactly what you're going to get. And when the NBA goes back, when hockey goes back, when, when NFL goes to training camp, you're, you're going to start to see more that, well, you know what, here we were worried about, you know, keeping our players from this and, and X percentage of them have already had it and dealt with it. And like you say, you, you don't want to dismiss it because there's some serious health consequences to this for, for certain individuals. But if they're not, you know, if, if you don't have um, the, the dire health implications that this virus can cause, um, and, and by and large, athletes, you would think, are not going to uh, default and go to the worst place uh, uh, but because of their overall fitness, um, this, this is just going to be a way of life going forward. And, and you know, you want to flip this if you're looking at it strictly from a football standpoint. Would you rather have Ezekiel Elliott test positive on June 12th, 2020? Or would you rather have him test positive uh, 24 hours before their first game against Philadelphia and know he's going to miss that game and the game after that? So this this is just a glimpse of of sports in 2020, if they are resumed, that you have to be every team is going to have to be prepared that they could lose a star player at any moment. Kevin, what's your level of concern about that news? That, that, that piece of news that, that Ezekiel Elliott had tested positive for COVID. Uh, what is your immediate takeaway on that? Well, I'm like, David, I'm not surprised that these guys are <laughs> testing positive. Now, listen, I'm, everybody wants to say, oh, these are young guys and uh, they'll be fine. You know, well, young young people have died from this, and and uh, and I think sometimes you have underlying conditions you have no idea about. You know, I I don't know what sickle cell traits. Uh, if if someone who who has some, you know people can have that and not even know it, um, how how is that affected by it? You know, I I don't know. I I I would always be a little nervous about someone's uh, health going forward, and um, no matter what age they are, no matter what their uh, physical condition might be or, and, and how, uh, strong and, and, uh, you know, that, that they may be. And, uh, I, I'm, I'd be concerned about any of that. Uh, but the second thing is, it's just, that, uh, going back to what David said, I, I think that we all, we all want everything to come back and we want everything to go back to normal. And, and we think that that's going to happen this year at some point, right? Isn't it? And it's like when everything opened up, and uh, and oh, we're going to open up our restaurants, and and so all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you drive by, and these restaurants are just packed, and there's people in there, and they've got no mask on, and anything. It's like, and then and then the numbers are spiking again. It's like everybody's surprised. It's like, why are you surprised? Did you really just think 
just because they're opening this restaurant I means you should run in there without a mask on and and take that kind of chance it's just it's just insane to me i, I felt bad yesterday i had to take uh my youngest daughter's car in to, to the shop she hit a deer of all things uh and, and mess with the front end of the car so i, t I take it in this little bitty shop and and i i'm in her car so i didn't have my mask i keep my mask in the car and and so uh, i didn't even think about it i got in there and i it's a little bitty waiting area and nobody in there and there weren't very many of us in there uh like four or five people in about a i don't know a 100 square foot you know, or 150 square foot room but i'm thinking the whole time if i if i get the virus from coming in here after all the precautions I've taken, I'm really going to be mad about this, you know, and, and yet this is bound to happen. It is going to happen this fall. You know, when we play sports, people are going to be getting sick. People are going to be sitting out uh, no, no matter what you do, no matter where you go. It, it's just going to be a disaster. I, I think I, I just don't see how we, we talk about in sports all the time about distractions. You know, the worst thing that can happen in sport is a distraction. You know, usually it's a distraction. It's something like a, a tornado came through. That's not a distraction. You know, that's a, that's a real thing in life. Uh, and, and what a bigger distraction will there ever be than this, you know, coming through every week when they're testing all these guys and it's a, it's a constant presence and we're trying to figure out what to do. It, it'll, I think once all this actually starts to take place and the sports come back and we're actually watching it, seeing it, writing about it, that it will, it will override everything else. I just, it, it feels a little bit to me, I'm kind of like on the face, I'm like a little bit on the side of people saying that I don't know if this is a good idea. Yeah. I mean, I've got I, the, the thing that immediately hit me was, yeah, Zeke is young and, and healthy and all of that. And, and by and large, Cowboys players are healthy and, and in, in peak physical shape. The, the, the thought that just hit me is these players have had it drilled into their head about staying inside bubbles and about taking the precautions necessary. And you've still had multiple Cowboys contract the, the disease. Um, what does that say about the, the level of community spread um, if they're living their lives in, in October, are they going to be inside a bubble like the NBA players? Can you possibly do that with a football team? I, I don't know how you can. Um, and so, and I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I, I don't see a sport out there where, um, where the, the possibility of community spread would be any greater than in an NFL locker room and on, on the field. And that's always been my biggest my biggest issue. Um, that part is what's concerning to me. I, I, I look; these are athletes. They are in better health and better condition than most people. They do have access to the. They have some level of privilege in terms of what doctors they can get to and and how they can get to them. And it's not so much the fact just that Zeke Elliott had a, a COVID test that I'm worried about his his, his health. I'm more concerned, uh, I think, at this point about, like, what does this do uh, inside a locker room? And certainly if you get 30 players on a team with this, you're going to have one or two who are definitely struggling. Um, what do you do? You know, what, what do you do and what kind, of, what kind of damage do you do to, to the sport if you, have to, if, you, if you start and you have to shut down? It's, um, it, it's all very troubling.
uh, what does that ball? It's all position groups. So yeah. if, if you have, if you have, if your starting linebacker gets COVID-19, there's a better chance that you're starting weak side linebacker. I mean, you know, it, it, it's going to run positionally a, a lot of times. And then teams are going to be looking at, well, who are we going to play at these positions? And so now you're talking about, do we need to make provisions uh, to have a larger taxi squad so we can call people up just so we can field and have a game competitively? Uh, and, which only and, you know, enlarges the number of people, right? Which only – Which is more people, which creates more of a – more potential – uh, issues. So, so yeah, there, there's no, there is no good answer to all that. And like you say, it's, uh, and I'll go back to something Kevin said earlier. It's even if these, even if these athletes, even if there's not a major concern for their health, can you say the same about the people around them? Can you say the same about their grandmother uh, who they didn't think of, you know, just didn't think and, and hug when she was at the game. Or, you know, it's it, it's the family members and other people you come in contact with uh, that are at a greater health risk. It's not just about your health and your ability to come through it. And uh, I, I think the longer we've gone, it, it's been even more reduced to, oh, well, this is just about me. I'm taking this chance. I'm willing to do it which again misses the point that was discussed early uh but i think is has been put in the rear to rear view mirror too much probably so let's um let's finish this up with uh, the the other big disaster which is is baseball um guys you have any thoughts before i weigh in i think we should abolish baseball <laughs> fine <laughs> i don't have anything good to say about it right now i really don't i i, I it's it's so distressing to me that these guys have turned this situation into a full-fledged labor um, negotiation. And what we have now is a work stoppage. There's no other way around it. it, it we are into a work stoppage, and I'd, I'd also almost call it a lockout because owners aren't permitting um, players to play. Um, uh, listen, you get to a point where the players basically say, you guys can dictate how many games we play. We'll just show up and play. Um, and then not 48 hours later, the commissioner walks back and says, uh, well, maybe we'll think again about whether or not we want to play. I, I just think baseball is doing irreparable damage, long-term irreparable damage um, from a short-sighted approach to whatever it is they're trying to accomplish this year. Um, and as I said at the beginning of this podcast, I don't know how you can have a commissioner go on national TV and say with 100% certainty that there will be a season, and four days later come back and say, no, actually, I was wrong. I'm going to walk that back. Either he's lied or he has no um, institutional knowledge of what's going on with his sport. So um, I, I really think Rob Manfred has, has crippled himself here. Um, I think nobody looks particularly good, but I think it, it – this comes back to owners doing what owners have always done, and that is trying to squeeze out extra dollars and extra pennies out of out of every facet of the game that they can. Um, and the players, these players, none of whom had experience with the last work stoppage, have found something to finally be galvanized about. And, and it, it, it just puts the sport in a real long-term uh, disadvantage because – I think you've now got players who really have an appetite for a full-fledged 
uh, stare down with ownership over the CBA when that expires after the 2021 season. And to me, that's what's happened here is that I think they look at it that way. It's like, look, we were probably headed toward this anyway in, in 20, after 2021. This, this year's already wrecked. Why don't we just go ahead and get this out of the way now? We'll just, we'll just get it out of the way now and, and, and get all the ugliness out and, and try to uh, and, and make our stance. And I don't, know, uh, I don't know how you can force the issue with a new deal. Because uh, I don't think you're going to get – I don't think you're getting any – you're not getting – this was an opportunity to get conversation about, okay, let's put some building blocks in place so that when we do get to 2021, we have a level of trust to actually get a collective bargaining agreement done. You're, you think they're going to talk about 2021, in, whether or not this season gets played? I don't see that happening. Yeah. It, and, do you th- and do you think this dissipates next year, which is the fine, say everything is, is cleared and, and you have a 2021 season? What's the conversation going to be throughout that season, knowing that the CBA is going to be up at the end of the season? Well, it, I've, it's, I've, I've talked about that extensively in radio interviews that, you know, look, my first year covering baseball full-time was 94, um, and I was all excited to cover baseball. And every day you went into the clubhouse, and the questions were about the impending gloom and doom of the strike. And uh, that was the over – maybe not in Arlington because you had the new stadium, and that was something for fans to really uh, enjoy during the, the time that they were here. But throughout the country, it was just this impending – doom of a strike like we had never seen before and they were right okay i think those who don't learn from history is that the (laughs) is that the thing yeah that's what it was uh all right well listen that's uh that's been a fun podcast i I tell you i (laughs) i don't know when i've had so much fun uh talking sports um well, I didn't think we could go downhill after, you know, you started us off with your litany of heart troubles, but we certainly have found a way. Well, no, what the heck? Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, uh, this is, this will all be interesting to me to see uh, what happens. Uh, you know, we may just have golf, maybe the only thing we have all year long. Uh, and we'll just all become huge golf fans. Um, so we'll see. Well, uh, uh, has anybody else got anything else they'd like to add to all that? I think I'm done. I think I'm tapped out. I've been done for a while. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. All right, then. Well, so for everybody in here and everybody out there, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Uh, Come back next week. Well, enjoy may not be the word you were searching for there. (laughs) Yeah, well, listen, we're we're not just trying to pass off a bunch of mess to you giving people. people pablum no we're giving them pablum we're giving them the real deal here this is what they come for that's right sports suck people <laughs> <laughs> remember that and we'll talk to you again next week <laughs> <laughs> all right everybody we'll see you bye <laughs> <laughs>